This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're marching into history from two angles as we mark 300 years since the completion of Berwick-upon-Tweed military barracks. And we're also looking at the story of one First World War soldier who lived at those barracks who's now been immortalised in a painting for visitors to see. Joining us to talk about both of these aspects are Senior Properties Curator for the North Region, Dr Mark Douglas. Hello. And award-winning artist, Chloe Cox. Hiya. Hello. So we'll talk to Chloe about her painting of Arthur Roberts soon, but let's get first to the historical context from Mark. So was Berwick-upon-Tweed, with its natural river defence, always this key location in territorial disputes between England and Scotland? Yeah, I would say so, yes. The River Tweed was quite rapidly seen as the natural border point between Scotland and England, far back as the the Anglo-Saxon times. And so it was that border region that became really important in terms of how the two nations sort of interacted. At one point, you know, the, the Scots would come south of the border, second time the, the English would go further beyond the border into Scotland. The main thing what really happened was the dispute over the crown of Scotland that broke out at the end of the 13th century, where the, the Scottish nobles called in Edward I to sort of arbitrate between who they would think that should be on the, on the Scottish throne was going to be Balliol, John Balliol, or was it going to be uh, Robert the Bruce, father, the famous mm. Robert the Bruce from the Battle of Bannockburn. And Edward came down on the side of Balliol because Balliol was going to be Edward's man in Scotland, and Scotland was going to basically end up being a kind of a puppet state and under the feudal control of, of England. And that sort of went a bit wrong, which gave Edward I an excuse to start a war with Scotland, the beginning of the Anglo-Scottish Wars. And he took Berwick itself in 1296, and it was the first time they changed hands in the Middle Ages, we should say. And that sort of went through the period right way up until the end of the 15th century. So Berwick has changed hands backwards and forwards. At one time, it was actually given to Scots at the time of the Wars of the Roses. And it wasn't finally taken back under English control until 1482. And then it, it's basically been part of England since 1482. So it, the river border was the same all the way through. And then suddenly it jumps north. The English border jumps north and takes in Berwick as the town. Mm. So yeah, it was a, it's a very important place. A staging post for raids into Scotland and a staging post for Scottish raids into England. So it was a, a, a strategically very important. And yes, I was, about, right through. I was about to mention the uh, border reavers thing, because we've covered that in a previous podcast, haven't we? About the, yeah, the raids yeah. from the north and, um, and vice versa. Yeah. So mm. it was obviously a, a, an important strategic area and a pinch point. Well, the, the border reavers thing is quite an interesting point that you make because the border reavers are not a national thing. They're not affiliated to nation states, but they took advantage of that kind of the no-go zone between the two regions through the top of Northumberland and the Scottish border became like a, almost like a wild west, like a, a lawless sort of place mm. because of the constant tension that was at place between the two countries. Yeah, so a power vacuum really in some senses. What was the fate of Berwick's garrison then after James I? So we're talking 1600s now, the uniting of the crowns of England and Scotland in 1603. Berwick itself was such of a, a strategic importance that from the, the date of Edward I, who added to the first castle at Berwick, right through to the Elizabethan times where there was a town wall, then the town wall was replaced by these huge earthen fortifications 
anti-canon fortifications, very, very modern. So from the reign of Elizabeth, actually her sister Mary, through to the end of her reign, they just added to this huge, huge fortifications and garrison was there in Berwick. All that sort of tension supposedly ended with the accession to the throne of James VI of Scotland, and we became James I of England. And they were all going to be best friends from that point onwards. So they, all that work and all that money expended on maintaining a, a defensive strategic point in, in Berwick was done away with, effectively, but obviously not in, in real terms. There was a, a garrison maintained in Berwick, but it was very, very much slimmed down to what it had been in the, uh, in the earlier part of the 1500s. But it was still a strategic town. There was still a threat from France, where France was still meddling in Anglo-Scottish affairs, and certainly the French would take the side of Scotland every time to put pressure on England. Mm. And so the uh, there was a, a more slimmed down and sort of a less robust garrison and uh, military response in Berwick. So broadly speaking, there was a, a military kind of uh, presence in terms of garrison in the Tudor times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And mm. and after James I united the crowns of England and Scotland in 1603, it was all happy families, supposedly. Well, we went through various stages of political unrest, of course. There was the um, the English Civil Wars, which did play some part. The English Civil War did involve expansion into Scotland, and there was battles in, in, in Scotland at the time. But then, of course, then just after that, there was the restoration of the monarchy. And so Charles II comes back, and then we get James II. Now, the problem with James II was to the English was the fact that he was he had Catholic sympathies and he certainly had a Catholic wife, and it, this put a lot of strain on Parliament and um, you know the, the powers of be in England. I eventually, decided to depose, and he was actually deposed at the, at the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and um, he was replaced with the very staunch Protestant William of Orange, who reigned with his wife Queen Mary, so as, as William and Mary. And James II was then ousted and exiled. He ended up in France and travelled out to Spain and back again, but never gave up his claim and actually did come back in terms of, um, you know, making his, his way back into the country with support from Rome, Spain and France. And he did the land in Ireland. He was cleared out again by William of Orange at the Battle of Boyne. But there were certain loyalties in the country, particularly in Scotland and some parts of Wales. And these people were known as Jacobites. Mm. And the Jacobites rose up several times, most prominently in 1715 and uh, 1745, in support of James II's descendants and tried to put a Stuart king back on the throne. Specifically relating to this garrison then, was it dismantled or just disused after James I united the crowns of England and Scotland? <clears throat> No, it wasn't. It wasn't disused. It was. It was. Uh, it was kept. It was kept as a garrison. The the garrison was not like we'd expect. We'd, we'd think of a garrison today. It was. It was mainly a local militia who were based at a place like Berwick, with a unit made up of what they call an invalid corps, which is like a forerunner of the Chelsea pensioners, people who've been injured or were too ill to be in the in the in a, an army unit, were given duties in garrisons within towns to just maintain order. They just basically bumbled along there and at Carlisle and various places around the country until the, 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 the early 1750s when they were basically reinvigorated by the threat, the second threat from the Scottish Jacobite Risings. Yes, let's talk about those Jacobite Risings, but we're going to talk about the Acts of Union as well. 1706 and 1707, this formally and politically united the English and Scottish crowns. So why did they then decide to build Berwick Barracks between 1717 and 1721. The Act of Union, that 
went a little bit further than the act of the crowns and, and brought a political union by uniting the parliaments of um, both countries to become a united kingdom as opposed to just two countries with one king. Mm-hmm. This was a, a, probably the, the, a, an impetus for the Jacobites, supporters of the old king, the old pretender, a chap called James Stuart, who was the son of James II. This sort of political union then sort of forced them forward in terms of their political affiliations and led to the first rising of 1715. So this is the so Jacobite it, Rebellion of 1715. And it was this that seems to have stimulated the building of particularly Berwick Barracks. What happened was that the traditional route of any invading army from Scotland would be either down through Carlisle or down the, the east coast, down through Berwick. The first Jacobite rising of 1715, they sort of came down the western coast, luckily bypassed Carlisle, where there was another garrison who was made up again of local militias, of local volunteers and an invalid corps. They had apparently had one barrel of gunpowder there, completely unprepared for anything that was going to come their way because they didn't expect anything because nothing was supposed to be happening. We'd roll friends. The army bypassed Carlisle and made their way down as far as Preston before they were repulsed and sent back into Scotland. So that was that was the first Jacobite rising over and done with. But it was a, a, an important wake-up message for the government of uh, Great Britain. And it was the 1715 rebellion that then stimulated a lot of works across the north of England, including the building of the barracks of Berwick. Who were the Jacobites wanting to get on the throne for Scotland? Um, George I is on the throne for England, isn't he? George I is on the, on the throne for England, yes, in, in, at the time of, of the building of barracks. But the Jacobites themselves, they are looking to put on, on the throne the descendants of James II. So this is why we get the word Jacobite. Jacobite comes from the, the Latin for James, which is Jacobus. James II's son, who was also James II, was who they referred to as James the Third. Actually, was the f- first figurehead for the, for the first Jacobite rising of 1715, and then later on in the uh, rising of 1745, it was Charles Stuart, who um, is better known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, who of course would have been in their eyes Charles the Third. What were the other northern defences that England had against Jacobite invasions? Because Carlisle was one place, wasn't it? Carlisle was one place. There were several forts actually in Scotland itself but none of them were seriously worked up as forts. They were placed in Scotland as a result of Cromwell's invasion of the, the 1640s. But places like familiar to us as Fort William, Fort Augustus, Fort George, basically three forts along the Great Glen. There was a garrison at Edinburgh. And then in, in England, of course, there was Carlisle. There was Newcastle, which is a very important staging post. And then there was the road that went from Newcastle to Carlisle called the Military Way. And that was the road that was allowed troops to pass across the country at a, at a given point, either needed on the west or the east coast. Every single one of them were increased and improved after the 1715 rising because they realised that you know that actually they had the measures, but they weren't effective enough to deal with a large-scale uprising in Scotland. And obviously, the acts of the Union were 1706 and seven. The rising. The first Jacobite rising was 1715, so that's quite a lot of time. So obviously there was a real strong undercurrent and um, a mood against an English king ruling over Scotland, effectively. We talked about the the first Jacobite rising in 1715. It wasn't the first one itself, it's the first major one, but there was risings right way through from the 1720s onward, but there was insurrection right way through. Mm. Well, you know, it, it finally finished in 1746 with the Battle of Culloden. But there was an undercurrent, like you say, of political, religious, land ambition, and also French and Spanish interference as well, which didn't help. Yes, of course. So there were, you know, a war with, with Scotland has always been a distraction for England. 
It's a little bit muddy, I would say. It's very muddy. As muddy as soldiers' <laughs> feet, you could say. Mm. Um, speaking of soldiers, obviously Berwick's barracks were the first purpose-built barracks in England, and this made them a pioneering and permanent military installation. So can you tell us who designed Berwick barracks and what do they look like? Yeah. Just to clear one little point, we do refer to Berwick as being the first permanent barracks to be built and first purpose-built barracks to be built in the country. Up to a point, there are purpose-built barracks of their type. There were barracks before that. There's barracks were back in in the 1600s, particularly in Plymouth. But these were different type of there were different type of installations. It was more of a somewhere you lived, somewhere you put people to live, as opposed to housing them as as, a, as a, in a barrack military style. There were sort of small small houses, individual cottages that were built in a barrack block as opposed to what we got at Berwick is a strictly regimented, and I think regimented is a good word, a way of dealing with getting as many people in one place at one point to be ready for action, as it were. But yes, the barracks were designed by a chap called Nicholas Hawksmoor, and Nicholas Hawksmoor was a very, very famous architect of the late 17th and early 18th century. Hawksmoor is more his, his designs for churches, particularly if you think of the famous church in Trafalgar Square, St. Martin in the Fields which was designed by Hawksmoor and several other churches in and around London. And also he was instrumental in, in some of the buildings and the estates and associations with Vambra, which was another, another famous architect at um, Castle Iwood, for example. And he, he designed in the in what they call the Baroque style, which is a, it's a neoclassical style with lots of frilly bits on it, I think is the easiest way to say it. And his design for, for, for Berwick Barracks was indeed just like that. It was a hugely long barrack block, 65 metres long by 30 metres wide, two of them facing each other across a parade ground. The Board of Ordnance, the chaps who looked at these, these drawings, said, yeah, yeah, they're nice, but, you know, it's a bit fancy for how I like it. And they took a lot of that stuff off. And what you end, what you end up with is these two huge, huge barrack blocks facing themselves across east-west, across a big parade ground with a, a beautifully ornate gate, a nice fancy gateway with the arms of George I on the northern side and a, just a blank wall on the far side, the southern side. That was basically what we got, just two big, long buildings. And is it made of stone or is it brick? It's stone. It turns out that most, a lot of the stone came from the old castle. So the outside walls are stone. The inside walls are brick. The bricks themselves will be produced at uh, a place called Tweedmouth, which is on the other side of the River Tweed from Berwick. And there were, apparently there was about a million bricks were used in the construction of the inside case of the building, the staircase, right. the internal walls. A lot of the structural timbers came from the Baltic and came from Norway. And the windows and doors apparently were made in the um, Tower of London, the workshops in the Tower of London. How many soldiers did we have at the barracks then in the 17 and 1800s? The design of the barracks is on four blocks. Can you imagine if you had a terrace of four houses? It's like, it's, like, it's like a big terrace of four big houses all joined together on three floors. And three of those blocks, A, B and C block on the eastern side, were for soldiers. And for each, there was three floors with four rooms on each floor. And each room had four beds and each bed was shared by two men. So basically, so there was eight men per room. So the whole thing added up to around about was 570-something men for the two barracks themselves, let's say 600 men. Right. Um, that sounds pretty cramped, really, considering the cramped. bed sharing and, and all yeah, this but sort of no thing. toilets, no sanitary equipment, no, no, no running water, and they had to cook in the rooms. Goodness me. And there was a block reserved at each end, the northern end of each of the two main barracks, a block on each side reserved for officers, and there was 36 officers, and junior officers shared two to a room, and the senior officers had a room themselves. Right. If you go to Berwick, you'll see that those blocks, particularly the block on the on the east side, 
the decoration inside there were the staircases are much more fancy, the windows are more fancy, the rooms are more fancy. So there was a different distinction between who was living where and what they were doing. Was there much difference in the number of um, troops stationed there in the 17 and 1800s? Did it increase or did it contract? Or? By 1746 and the Battle of Culloden, the Jacobite Rises, they were finished. That, that was it. It was all over. And so from that point onwards, things were scaled back a little bit. The one thing about the barracks is that the two main barrack blocks, they did receive other things. They did eventually receive a, a water um, and a wash house in the middle of the prayer ground. There was a big store. It's known now as the clock block. There's a big store built on the southern side, which is only 20, 30 years later, which is a big store for storing vigils and, and, and equipment. And there was a huge magazine, a powder magazine that was built on the, in the on just outside on the rampart. So, so it was it was kept on going. It was being supplied and maintained and looked after. But eventually things basically went the other way. And there was, mm-hmm. and so by the 19th century, the strategic role of Berwick in terms of a defence between England and Scotland was completely gone. In fact, Berwick ramparts themselves, the huge rampart that walk, that goes around by the by the mid 19th century, became almost like a public park. Was there a particular regiment based there? Yeah, there was two, the Northumberland Fusiliers, who were there in the mid-19th century, and they were placed in uh, 1881 by the King's Own Borderers, uh, which then became the King's Own Scottish Borderers, and they were there from 1881 until 1963. Well, let's look now about uh, the 20th century, because you've mentioned the 19th. So what role did the barracks play during the First World War? There's two roles in the First World War. They run up to the First World War, let's say for 1900 onwards, the prominence of the German war machine caught the eye of, of, of Europe and particularly Great Britain. And they realised now that the threat was no longer from France as it had been. The threat was across the North Sea. So you'll see that at one point during the, you know, the history of our island, the southern coast and the southeast coast has been the one that would be most heavily defended with the force, particularly through the time of Henry VIII and onwards. But from the late 19th century onwards, you'll see that there's a strengthening of the defences on the east coast, see Tynemouth and, and, and Hartlepool and down towards the towards Scarborough, and particularly of Berwick. And so there's a two-pronged thing there, that the garrison and the guns that were placed there and the guns that were placed on, on the on the seafront there, they were there to think about an invasion from across the North Sea. But also with the outbreak of war, Berwick then became a rallying point from the the outbreak of the, the First World War in 1914 up until 1916 when conscription came in, Berwick became a, a centre for processing voluntary recruits into the British Army. Interesting. Let's bring in now artist Chloe Cox into our conversation. She's going to talk about her painting, which is going on display at Berwick-upon-Tweed Barracks. We should explain a bit more about this. It's a portrait of Arthur Roberts, who lived from 1897 to 1982, and who in his 20s was stationed at Berwick Barracks in the King's Own Scottish Border Regiment, KOSB, which Mark's just been describing, in preparation for the First World War. And he was born in Bristol and brought up in Glasgow, but his family was originally from Trinidad, which is just off Venezuela in South America. So, Chloe, are you there? Hello. Yes, Hello. I'm still here. Well, you've learned a lot from listening to Mark describing everything about <laughs> I know, the right? barracks. <laughs> History lesson today. <laughs> Absolutely. How were you then first approached about painting this singular soldier, Arthur Roberts? And when was this? Well, I was contacted in August last year. I got an email from English Heritage and they basically just said, are you interested in a new commission, we have an idea for a project which is going to bring to light some of the black figures associated with our properties. And yeah, we want to bring them to the forefront of history. 
we want some appearance of them and we're thinking we could get some artists to recreate those portraits would you be interested and I was like yes <laughs> yeah you must have been quite thrilled to get the email you know yeah, definitely, definitely. And also because I 100% wasn't expecting it. As an artist, you tend to be the one reaching out to competitions or, you know, other people to see if you can get any work. But it was the first time something quite major had sort of come to me. So that was a real nice surprise. Why him particularly? Did they say, can you please paint Arthur? Is that how it worked? Or did you have a choice of people to, to paint? <sighs> No, yeah. So there were, I think, about seven portraits to choose from. And the eighth was Hannah's. Um, so Hannah Uzel had already painted Sarah Forbes. And she was, I think, English Heritage were buying her portrait to be part of this exhibition. Mm. And then English this Heritage is the one at had... one house, isn't it? Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who was Queen Victoria's yes. um, goddaughter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there were seven other figures associated with properties. And we were given briefs on each of the people we also had a Zoom call, listened to some of the history about them and also some information about the sites that they'd be based at. And then essentially we all just kind of went away and had a think and put forward our preferences. And then English Heritage tried to divvy, the, <laughs> divvy it all up as fairly as possible. And yeah, I, I actually did choose Arthur Roberts. He was my first choice. The reason was actually because there were a range of figures from different points in history and he was the most recent one and had photographs of him and that was basically the tipping point for me was being able to work from a photograph helped mm. put me in my comfort zone a little bit. Yes, of course. Um, We've seen pictures on the website and you can also go and look at those of Arthur and you can almost make your comparisons between the photograph and the finished mm. portrait. How long did it take you to bring Arthur to canvas then from research to the final brush stroke must have taken I mean, ages well it's funny because initially the painting was due for black history month like that was the idea and that would have been the november so having an email in august and then thinking you've got to produce a portrait by november that was the initial time scale and then the project kind of got extended so that we could take more time to research and experiment so mm. i did have a good amount of time as about six months in total but I then started working a full-time job, so I, I did need that time in the end. Yeah. Um, I started collating as many photos of him as I could off of the internet, and I had some material from the King's Own Scottish Borderers Museum as well. They sent photos of his uniform and some historical documents as well. I was reading this book about him called As Good As Any Man, mm -hmm. which gave you excerpts of his diary and sort of fleshed out some of the circumstances of the war that he would have been experiencing as well. So all of that helped me with my research and I started sketching his face, trying different colors and getting to know him from different angles as well. And then, yeah, I just kind of picked a canvas and went for it, but. Sure, how big is your canvas of him? Um, it's mostly it's, head it's and shoulders, like isn't it? 50... Yeah, yeah, it's head and shoulders. And well, initially I did this painting, which I thought was gonna be the one, and it was just his, head it was kind of like a headshot mm -hmm. but because I did it a very similar size the kind of blown up version of his face being so big and the reference photo being so grainy and blurry kind of worked against me it kind of showed how little I actually had to work from mm -hmm. so I then scrapped that one <laughs> and um, started again but I definitely think doing that first portrait really helped inform the final piece yes and roughly how, how big is it? Because I've seen a picture of you in a video where you're holding it up. So it's probably about... Uh, I think it was 50 centimetres by 50 centimetres. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, so it's a, it's a fairly decent size. And learning about Arthur when you're doing all the research, did you get any insight into his personality? Because in the photograph, he's got a little bit of a glint in his eye, a little bit, bit of a chippy <laughs> chappy thing going on, I think. Yeah. Did you pick up yeah, on that definitely. at all? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was interesting because I started the portrait early on in my research and then as I was reading about him, particularly with the book that I spoke about, he literally reading him, writing things down, um, gave me an insight into his mindset and just the kind of way he chose to write, I thought was really interesting. He's creative, he's reflective. He was a really engaging writer Hmm. and he sounded like someone who was writing not a kind of personal diary, but someone who was writing almost to turn something into a novel or a memoir in the future. Like he would address his reader sometimes. Wow. And so you think, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe he he had greater intentions for this back even back then. So to me, he struck me as someone who had who wanted to live, who wanted to leave a legacy, even if it was just in his diary or in his letters home. And that struck me as just being a really interesting aspect of who he was. But also you, you think, okay, so if he's imagining this is going to go to an audience, like how honest is he going to be? Like there's no mention of any kind of racist encounters with his fellow soldiers. I mean, I haven't finished the book yet, actually, but anytime there's been any kind of what might be perceived as bullying, it's kind of lightly passed off as like a good joke or just a, a kind of prank. Mm. So to me, that's either he's got a really good strength of character or he'd rather just not be remembered from the kind of pitying Mm. aspect. He wants to be remembered as someone who just played a very normal, very real part of the war. And as I was painting him, I just increasingly was sort of like respecting him and I wanted to portray him as well as possible. Yes, now I wanted to pick up on that. The thing that jumped out to me, and I don't know whether I've got this right or not, is that when I looked at the black and white brownish photographic image and I looked at your painting I saw a slightly different person coming through the canvas depending on the distance that I was looking at the painting Mm -hmm. so maybe this was something that you meant to do intentionally but I see a bit more seriousness in Arthur's expression in the canvas depending on the distance that I'm looking at it and I see Mm -hmm. a bit more of a bit more of a cheeky chappy <laughs> in the photographic version. Am I mm. teasing out the right things here? Perhaps, yeah. Did you set about doing a more sombre, reflective piece? It's, it's, it's interesting that you've said that because I chose that photo because I saw the kind of cheeky charm, that exactly what you're talking about, which I suppose I intended to put in there. But maybe somewhere psychologically there was a serious kind of like, I want to do you justice kind of coming through and also mm. understanding that he he was quite sophisticated in himself and sort of wanting to portray that like seniority mm-hmm. to him. Yeah, so perhaps you've actually picked up on something that even I hadn't at the time. Yes. But so it was definitely feeding through, yeah. Perhaps unintentionally or just subliminally, your brushstrokes have created a man who you as an artist have really respected and got to know and that you Mm -hmm. wanted to paint him in um, a dignified military way. Indeed, yeah. I'd I'd definitely say that's true, yeah. Now that we've sort of uncovered this new version of the 
self-portrait that you didn't even really know about until I sort of brought it up. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Who who will be able to see your portrait? It's going on display at Berwick-upon-Tweed Barracks, isn't it? Yeah, so it's currently in the King's Own Scottish Borders Museum, although I haven't myself seen it hung up yet, so that'll be fun. I think it's going to be there until about November, I believe. Are you planning a trip up there to go and have a look? Yes, I've actually recently moved house, so it's all been a bit hectic. But now that I'm in, I'm definitely looking to travel up there. Yeah. Is it free to enter, Mark? What are the arrangements for Berwick-upon-Tweed? There's an entry fee to enter the site. But once you get inside the site, the King's Own Scottish Border Regiment Museum's inside the site. So it's and there's a there's also an exhibition running on the English Heritage site showing the uh, the way that the barracks were used and the way that the King's Own Scottish Borderers were deployed. And then there's a, also a the Berwick Museum as well. So it's a, it's a, it, you get sort of three museums in one. Is the painting explained with signage and that sort of thing? When you walk up to it, does it explain this is Arthur Roberts, etc., etc.? I believe so. I think there's um, a kind of artist bio and statement. And then I believe there is information about Arthur, but Mark might know better than me. Yes, I believe that there's, there's there's a whole sort of um, a, a small biography, and uh, you just explained about the whole the whole um, not just the painting there, but the commission for mm-hmm. artists to do representations of people from all over the country as well in terms of English heritage sites and uh, their connections. Sure. Just wrapping up then for both of you, Mark Arthur's regiments, the KOSB, the King's Own Scottish Border Regiment. How long did that actually stay at Berwick upon Tweed Barracks? A considerable amount of time, the King's Own Scottish Borders, they were first deployed and centred at Berwick Barracks in 1881, following on from the, you know, from the Fusiliers. And they stayed there till 1963. So right through the First World War, right through the Second World War, it was a, the regimental headquarters. And actually, it still is regimental headquarters as opposed to, they don't actually stay there now, they don't spend any time there, but the museum is still the museum, the, the King's Own Scottish Borders. Did the KOSB just move to a different location? Yeah, they got transferred up towards Edinburgh. And how did the barracks eventually come into the care of English heritage? The basic is put into the guardianship of the state. You can imagine, it's not just the Ber- Berwick, it's like the huge, it's a huge, huge site. I mean, it's the whole of the town is a, a huge military installation. From the castle, the 16th century fortifications instigated by Henry VIII, which is called Lord's Mount, to the Elizabethan ramparts is also a part of a, an earlier fortification that's, that's attributed to Edward VI, who was the son of Henry VIII. Then is the, the Elizabethan ramparts, then there's a Hanoverian, so the, so the Georgians did a lot of fiddling around with um, the key walls and building defence in different ways, you know, adding to them. And of course, there's the barracks from, from 1717 to 1721. So there's an awful lot of stuff that, that was there that was looked after by either the military or the Crown Estates. And then basically in the early 60s, the 60s, it was all transferred to the Ministry of Works, the Department of Environment, and then from there to English Heritage when English Heritage was formed in 1984. So it's in state guardianship, transferred by the Crown, and we basically look after it now, maintain it, and try to present it to the public. Yeah, and worth a visit for two reasons now, because we have a portrait on display and we also have the barracks themselves. So there are more reasons to visit 
Yeah, I think what Chloe's done is um, brought out another extra dimension in terms of um, what you're getting your visit to Berwick. Berwick's always been the kind of place that you would go if you're sort of a to look at the fortifications as a, as a, as a military aspect. It's, it's it's obviously very very military and very historical. And I think our all of our um, sort of experience in terms of the First World War over the last few years, when we did when we had the 2014 to 2018 sort of commemoration. We've got a different sort of perspective, and I think Chloe's uh, you know, contribution adds that extra dimension, that extra perspective to otherwise, you know, sort of a, a fantastic output. And um, but it would be very worthwhile and a, and a, a very laudable project. And um, how do you feel, Chloe, about being part of this project finally, and um, and having Arthur on display, and a light being shone on his time there? Yeah. Oh, I felt honoured, honestly, right from the start to be part of this. I could see where it was going and how important it was going to be. Also, just from an artistic perspective, you know, to have that recognition, to sort of have been sought out for something that is in a way my own artistic mission. And so to have that perfectly aligned with the mission of English Heritage and for them to have seen that in my work and yes, to sort of contact me was amazing. But just generally, I think it's a huge step for the arts industry, for history, to have big organisations kind of acknowledge that there's, there's a gap, there's a need for diversity, and um, I think my my sort of thought into bringing Arthur to the museum was I wanted him to look like he fit in with the rest of the soldiers there. Like, mm-hmm. okay, he's a person of colour, but he was just another soldier. That's what he wanted to be seen as, you know, as good as any man, as good as another soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't want his portrait to be massive and like kind of overpowering. I wanted him to just sit very modestly, but also very comfortably with everyone else and I'm hoping that's kind of the effect that I've achieved and I, I'm just really happy to have been included in, in helping bring him to the museum. So yes, now you and he and English Heritage and the barracks, you're all completely connected. Uh, um, mm. And uh, maybe you might even start painting some other figures from history from now on. Who knows? <laughs> oh yeah, I definitely love that. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck with it, and I wish you the best. It's a fantastic portrait, and um, oh, thank you. I think people really will really enjoy this extra dimension when they come to visit Berwick-upon-Tweed Barracks. Mark Douglas and Chloe Cox, thank you both for talking to us. No, thank you for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover the story of Richmond Castle in North Yorkshire on its 950th anniversary. We're actually going to undertake a community archaeology to look at what we found on some geophysics we did a number of years ago, just to try to establish what some of these buildings might be and what they might tell us about the history of the castle. Thanks for listening. See you next time.